is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. It is such a pleasure today to be back with you, Andy, pulling you out of the editing room for one of the final times here. I know it's going well, but we have a really special guest today, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So, Mr. Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Lori and Andy. Bobby, Absolutely. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Lori. Um, yes, I, hopefully I pulled out of the editing suite for nearly <laughs> the final time. Otherwise, I'll have to be pulled out of a lunatic asylum. I mean, trying to... Bobby, trying to make this film, trying to finish it under the uh, duress of, of lockdown and um, tornadoes in Mississippi that blocked our ability to edit for a time. It's, it's almost Old Testament in, in, in character. Well, but well, we well, are there. Well, We've made it. Revelations right now. But I, I looked at the cut that you guys sent me yesterday, and I'm very excited about it. Really, I think you did a fantastic job at compressing this story and telling it in a way that's really accessible. And I'm really excited to see what happens when um, this goes public. That's great. Thank you. It's, it's a very much better film today than it was yesterday. Actually, we finally got various computers to work and uh, overcome came various technical problems. So um, if you'd like to have another look at a final strung together version that's very much better than the one you saw, then uh, very happy to do that. But yes, it was uh, it was a challenge to tell such a complex story of litigation and legislation, and and the way in which I tried to do it was make it as as you say accessible, a, a way that people can relate to because the protagonists, the husband and wife who become effectively the narrators by proxy are, are ourselves. They do what we could have done or should have done or maybe to some extent did do. I hope you feel that that, that worked to, ex, uh, you know, to a large extent. I do. I think it was a really good way to do it. And for those who don't know, of course, we're talking about the 1986 Act, which gave vaccine makers immunity from any kind of market liability, a fact that as... Andy and I have been sharing this film and its concept with folks around the country for the past year. I am stunned at how few people even know that. Yes, how many politicians don't know it? And, uh, you know, you meet them and you talk to them and they say, oh, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, they're liable. And you say, actually, no, they're not. And here are the following reasons why they're not. Do you still experience this, Bobby? Do you find that people, many people who should know don't know about the, uh, the 1986 Act? Yeah, people, I think probably the majority of people don't know that vaccines are shielded from liability so that no matter how um, how grievous the injury to your child, no matter how negligent the company, no matter how toxic the ingredient, you cannot sue that company. And, you know, they there's kind of a cascade of, of revelations that follows that, which you kind of show in the film, which is... Um, of course, the first thing people ask is, why would these companies have any incentive to make a vaccine safe if they can't be sued? After all, these are the companies, 
these are the four companies, the four companies that produce all 72 of the mandatory vaccine that are now required for our children. And all four of those companies, Sanofi, Merck, Laxo, and Pfizer, are convicted felons. And the other, as you point out, in the in Vioxx, they killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans by selling them a headache pill that they knew caused heart attacks. And they didn't tell anybody. They gave them no informed consent. They knew from their clinical data that they were going to kill a lot of people. And they actually, during the litigation, the attorneys for the plaintiffs were able to obtain a spreadsheet that was created by Merck's bean counters, in which they said it was just like the you know, like the Ford, was it Ford Vega, that where they, they made a calculation, said, we're going to kill this many people from this, from this drug, but we'll still make more money in the long run. And they made the decision to kill those people. And most of those people, if they had knew that they were taking a, uh, you know, an arthritis or a headache pill, a pain pill, that caused heart attacks, most of them would have probably said, you know what, I'll take an aspirin, I'll take an Advil, or I'll take a Motrin. And, but they weren't given that choice because Merck didn't give it to them. So it requires kind of a cognitive dissonance for us to believe that the same companies that were playing that game and are continue to play it as part of their culture. The last 10 years, those four companies have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties and damages for falsifying science, for defrauding regulators, for lying to doctors, to um, uh, to bribing and blackmailing public officials. Those same companies are the companies that are making our vaccine. And what makes us think they're not doing the same thing there in that space? And of course they are because vaccine is the one place they can never get caught because mm. you cannot sue them. Virtually all of those criminal cases that have been brought against those companies were filed by U.S. attorneys because private plaintiff's attorneys first sued that company representing clients who were injured by their products. And during the course of litigation and discovery, they came across documents that showed criminal behavior, and they walked those documents down to the U.S. attorney's office and said, you should be prosecuting them. Well, that could never happen with vaccines. So why I mean, would the company yeah. ever behave? I mean, you're absolutely right, Bobby. And Discovery is one of the linchpins of the, of the film. And I, you and I have sat down and we've looked at the, some of the documents, some extraordinary documents, revelations that they could never have withstood before a jury. They would have been destroyed if they add and they come out of they come out in the film and my question to you is why okay i have a product and i know i can make it safer but i choose not to because it's going to eat into my profit margins and so i know that proceeding as i am and hiding this information from the public not allowing parents even doctors uh, the ability to give informed consent or parents to on consent and make a decision accordingly I know that I am going to kill people. Now, that is premeditated. It is deliberate beyond the point of knowledge. It is deliberate. Where does this fall in the category of first, second or third degree murder? And me, to me, it, it's first degree murder. I, I really, really hope, and, I, and with your help, this may well happen, is that prosecutions arise out of this film, out of the documents that are within the film that lead to convictions. Because the problem for me in all of this, in the in the agencies and in the in the industry, there is no accountability. Nobody is held accountable for killing 
and maiming these children. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is that they have, they have other extraordinary protections that nobody knows about. Number one, they don't have to test the vaccines, as you know, and that's part of the problem. They don't, they're absolved from, it's the only medical product that never has to be safety tested against a placebo. And so not only do they have no incentive to make them safe, but they, the vaccine is cheaper for them to produce because they can avoid the phase one, phase two, and phase three safety trials, which cost typically about 100 to 200 million dollars and that that shielding from that shield from from the necessity that they do safety testing is an artifact of cdc's legacy as the public health service which was a quasi-military agency which is why people at cdc have military ranks like surgeon general the vaccine program was initially launched as a national security defense against a biological attack on our country so the public health service wanted to make sure that if the russians attacked us with a biological agent like anthrax that we could quickly formulate and then deploy a vaccine to 200 million american civilians with no regulatory impediments and they knew that if they called it a medicine that they would have to safety test it like all medicines are safety tested and a double blind placebo test that lasts for typically about five years. But they by call it so they called it something else. They called it a biologic and then they made it so FDA made it so that biologics do not have to be safety tested. Well, not a single one of the 72 vaccines that are now mandated for our children have ever been tested against a placebo, which means that and you know they even the American Medical Association has said, if you don't use a placebo testing, it's not science, it's marketing. And because they're not placebo tested, nobody knows what the risk profile is for those products. Well, there's no way for us to say that this, with any of those particular vaccines, that, that particular vaccine is averting more deaths and injuries than it's causing. Nobody can tell you that with any kind of scientific certainty. It's all guesswork. And so, you know, we had this explosion of chronic disease that began when the vaccine schedule exploded around 1989. And we've seen it, not just autism that you're talking about, but also these other neurodevelopmental disorders, ADD, ADHD, tics, uh, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, SIDS, ASD, and autism. You have a autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and diabetes that exploded at the same time beginning like 1989, 1990, and then the allergic diseases like peanut allergies, anaphylaxis, eczema, and asthma that all exploded at the same time. And all of those diseases are listed as vaccine side effects on the manufacturer's inserts that come with those vaccines. So today, those four companies are making between 50 and $60 billion a year selling vaccines that are mandated to our children, but they're making $500 billion a year selling the EpiPens, the albuterol inhalers, the asthma inhalers, and Advair, the Concerta, the Adderall, the Ritalin, the anti-seizure medication, the diabetes medication that are all directed towards treating chronic illnesses that, that are listed as side effects of the vaccines on their own insert. If you look at, for any of those companies, if you look at their top 20 non-vaccine pharmaceutical drugs, virtually all of them are targeted to targeting 
illnesses that are listed as side effects on their own vaccine inserts. Oh, you know, it's the perfect business model. We give you the disease for life, and then we sell you the treatment for life. And, you know, if you think of it this way, if you get measles, Andy, and I know you know as much about measles as anybody in the world, treatment for measles is a week in bed and, and vitamin A and chicken soup. And none of those things can be patented. And yet, if you can give that child Crohn's disease with that vaccine or to seizures or IBS or any of these other lifetime ailments, um, you now have a customer for life, a high value customer for life. So that's, it is the perfect business plan and it's the most and it's perfect business plan in human history. You know, it is remarkable the disconnect between the risks and the dangers of vaccination and these side effects and the way Andy has kind of laid out the timeline of the corruption and the misinformation going all the way back to the polio vaccine, I think that was such a great way to showcase all of this, for lack of a better term, Andy, because it could have been a very boring film about policy and paper, but we actually get to see the discovery of all this through this couple. I'm just wondering, Bobby, do you think when Americans have a chance to see it laid out this way in the film, that they're going to start to wake up to just how much of a charade this entire vaccination program has been. Of course they will, but you know, the Americans, listen, if they let Andy Wakefield on the Today Show and gave him a half an hour, the whole house of cards would collapse. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? The problem is not the message and how you tell it, and you tell it in a brilliant way in this film, a very compelling way. The problem is, how do you get people to see it? Because the media is, you know, is out there, and their job is to make sure nobody sees this stuff. And that's really the problem, the censorship. It's not that our messages is, you know, the way we tell the message is not problem. We, we know how to talk about this in a way that's very, very compelling. The problem is we're not allowed to write about it in the newspapers. We're not about allowed to talk about it on radio or television. And we now are completely censored on the social media. That's right. Uh, I, I love the way that you, you know, the DTP vaccine, which is kind of major introduction. I love that you did polio because everybody says, well, the polio vaccine worked. And, that, and you show the real story, which is, or at least most of the story, which is, uh, oh, actually, it didn't work that well. It actually caused the, one of the biggest polio epidemics in history. And today it continues to con- 70% of the polio on earth today is caused by the vaccine. And every polio case in this country since 1979 has been caused by the vaccine. And we still have a lot of paralysis. We just call it something different. GBS, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which I think paralyzes three or 4,000 people a year, used to be called polio. You know, so they say we abolished polio, but we didn't really. We got it. And, and, um, you know, there's it's non-polio other- associated flaccid paralysis. What an yeah. extraordinary way of reclassifying it, including yeah. the, t- the fact that it, it can't possibly be due to polio in the first place. Right. Um, one of the things now, that... I, I love I mean, the way that you got into this, that the real runway for this is the DTP vaccine, because as you showed, the DTP vaccine was, I think it was licensed in this country, mandated around 1980, correct me if I'm wrong, but it immediately started causing horrific brain damage in kids. 
And the physicians at that time, there was no taboo against talking about it. And doctors and scientists and parents were all clamoring and saying this thing is, is you know, causing these terrible um, encephalopathy, encephalitis, brain damage, and death in our babies. And F NIH, I think it was that time, our FDA decided to do these tests out in California. In the middle of the test, the, the chief scientist called up the chief scientist from Merck and said, you know, we thought we'd see these in one in 15,000 people, but we're seeing them in one in 300. And this is horrifically dangerous. And so they went down there and Merck was able to screw around then with the study protocols on a federally funded study to hide the impacts. But EPP was so dangerous that it was ultimately prohibited in this country. We continue to give it to 161 million African children a year, Bill Gates does, but it's banned in this country. And we switched to the DTaP, but the DTP vaccine was the vaccine that caused Wyeth. Wyeth went to Congress with the other three vaccine makers and said, we are losing $20 on downstream damages for every dollar that we're making from selling this vaccine. And these vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. They cannot be made safe. It's impossible. And unless you give us legislation that will shield us from liability, we're going to stop all vaccine production. And they basically held Congress hostage. And Congress passed and Reagan signed the Vaccine Act that was well-intentioned by many parties who helped design it, but it was quickly hijacked by the industry. And, you know, of course, now they've got a product that they've told everybody, you can't make it safe. And now there's no incentive for them to even try. And then, you know, I think at some point they realize that they could make a lot of money making dangerous vaccines because there's no there's no reason not to. You can sicken a lot of kids and then sell them, you know, the drugs for the chronic. Yeah, you, one thing that one of the things about I mean it's so pertinent, Bobby. What it's extraordinary. When we released Vaxed, it was it was censored from Tribeca and and Robert De Niro's turnaround led to a worldwide phenomenon. People learned about it who would never have learned about it. If it simply played at, at Tribeca, 100 people would have seen it and that might have been it. But then the whole world was clamoring to see Vax and it became a phenomenon. It really created, it precipitated a kind of knee-jerk terror in, in, in the industry and, and the regulators. And they, the, the mandates came thick and fast. But that wasn't going to happen again. They were smart enough to avoid that. But what happened this time, of course, is COVID-19. And now I know there are, I just saw the other day, and I think it was 30% uh, of Americans would not get a COVID-19 vaccine if one came out. And then uh, following the publication of the results of the study, which were Talk about publication by press release and really hyped that vaccine far more than it should have been. And it was much more dangerous than was portrayed in the story. You picked up on that. You published about it. Their share price went through the floor or certainly dropped dramatically. And it went to 50 percent of Americans who would not get this vaccine quite rightly. So suddenly they've got a major problem. I was just reading today that Bill Gates says at least 80% have got to have the vaccine worldwide, otherwise it's not going to work. And we're back to that old um, herd immunity chestnut. But it's very, very interesting because this film's going to come out at a time when this is front and center of so many people's minds, people who were not engaged in this debate before, the vaccination debate. But suddenly now there is an audience that goes way beyond the vaxxed audience, way beyond those who have children damaged by vaccines. And 
my hope, my sincere hope is that we can keep the uh, the internet open uh, to get this film out far and wide, worldwide. Yeah. But it is extraordinary. And I'd, I'd love you to talk about those vaccine trials for COVID-19 and what I mean, your thoughts are, Bobby. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that's happening now. You have a lot of people paying attention because for the first time they're telling people they may have adult mandates. So people are starting to think, what will I do if the you know, the police come to my door and tell me, yep, I got to take this vaccine or else. And and then for the first time, people are really paying attention and they're seeing how the sausage gets made. And they're seeing the, the, the kind of magical thinking, you know, which everybody from the beginning, you know, Gates and Fauci implemented this kind of hostage taking where they said, where they hijacked the COVID crisis, and they said, we're not going to let you out of your door until we have a vaccine that you all are going to be forced to take. And a lot of people thought, that's okay, because vaccines do what people say they do, which is you take one shot, and you have lifetime immunity, and there's no side effects. And now people are seeing that that was kind of magical thinking. And this week, Tony Fauci kind of breaking with Gates said, well, you know, if we do do this vaccine, it's highly likely that it will only provide temporary immunity, maybe only three months of immunity, which means you'll have to take it not just once, but every year. And that's the first time they've admitted that. Now, listen, Andy, you and I know a lot about the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine has been around for 90 years, since 1930. And according to the Cochrane Collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter of you know, pharmaceutical science, Cochrane Collaboration is 30,000 independent scientists who review the existing literature, and they do these periodic meta-reviews, and they've reviewed the twice in 20, I think 2010 and 2017, I think they reviewed the flu shot, all the literature on the flu shot, and they said a couple things about it. One is it takes 100 flu shots and one of the studies said 100 prevent one case of flu. And it and the other one said 73. So by 2017, you know, they had a better batch. Oh, you gave 73 shots. And they said that these are conservative. That the, it, these are industry studies, so they don't really believe them. But this is what the study shows. Of 73 flu shots to 100 prevent one case of the flu. And that's just flu symptoms. What Cochrane said is there's... There is no evidence, none, that flu shots prevent any hospitalizations or any deaths. And they said it's highly likely that they do the opposite because since we had widespread use of the flu shot among senior citizens, that mortality among the elderly has gone up. A lifespan has gone down mm. in lockstep with the flu shot. And then there's a number of other studies that at Cochrane mentioned one that shows that it that if you get that flu shot, if you transmit the flu, you're six times more likely to transmit the flu than somebody who didn't get the shot. The rationale that will, that will prevent transmission is not scientifically based. And then, you know, finally, if you get a flu shot, you're much more, you're 4.4 times more likely to get a non-flu respiratory infection, including coronavirus. And this year we saw, you know, in 2020, the Pentagon put out a report that showed that if you get a flu shot, you're 36% more likely to get coronavirus. And so all of these, you know, what are the chances 
that they're actually going to get a coronavirus. This is after 90 years. That's where we are with the flu shot. What are the chances that we're going to get a coronavirus vaccine that actually does what a coronavirus vaccine is supposed to do, which has one shot provides you lifetime immunity? I would say the chances of them getting that are next to zero. And I think um, absolutely right, Bobby. I think the other thing that I read today is that because the coronavirus infection rate is just dropping dramatically in the UK, they're not going to have enough people to test the Oxford vaccine on, that vaccine that didn't seem to protect the primates in which it was used from infection at all, or their ability to spread the infection, and they're going to ship the trial off to Brazil, to healthcare workers in Brazil. I wonder what kind of informed consent they're going to get before they're forced to take yeah. part in that trial. Yeah. Well, the Oxford vaccine is a mess. I mean, they They've got a billion dollars in government money. That's one of the main things that people under, have, need to understand. They see there's 108 vaccine companies developing their own products. And their assumption is, well, they wouldn't bet on this product unless they thought it was going to work. But that ain't true because virtually every one of these companies is getting hundreds of millions of dollars in government funding and the government is paying for all the development so for them it's just like getting a lottery ticket why not walk through the, the hoops to see if you won and then yeah the end, and they've already given them in advance immunity from liability so no matter how many people you kill or injure with that vaccine you can't be sued there's no downside for those companies. And Oxford, the way that they're behaving, you know, is Gary Pollard, Greg Pollard, is completely unethical because they did give this to monkeys, to macaques. All the macaques got coronavirus afterwards. They were all transmitting it. Oh, we know it doesn't work. And yet they took another billion dollars from the government and they're going to produce, you know, 100 million doses of it. And it makes no sense at all. And then the Moderna vaccine, which is the other front runner, which is the RNA vaccine, is using a technology nobody has any clue whether it's safe. It alters your DNA. It turns your cells into, in, in Gates's word, into vaccine factories. And it permanently alters your DNA. We don't know what that's going to do five years from now. And they're only testing these for three or four months and then putting them in production where millions of people are going to get them. It's really insane. And during the Moderna trials, there were three groups. They went right to human trials instead of going to animal trials. There's three groups. There's a high-dose group of 15 volunteers, a low-dose group of 15, and a medium-dose group. And the high-dose group, three of the volunteers got seriously ill, quote, seriously, end quote, ill. And what they... they they, they, they were described by FDA as class three illnesses, which means, which is defined as requiring medical intervention or hospitalization. Oh, you had 20% of the people who took that high dose vaccine that got horrendously sick. And you know, and I know, Andy, that these are, the, these are not typical Americans who took this. These volunteers were heavily screened to make sure that they didn't smoke cigarettes. They had no chronic diseases. They had no seizures in there, not only personally, but in their families. They had no diabetes. They had, they, they had fewer than, you know, a, a limited number of sex, fewer than four lifetime sex partners, et cetera. You had to pass all of these, you know, these very rigorous tests. These people were like superheroes. They were like the Avengers. They're people that, you know, you, you could shoot them with bullets and they wouldn't get it hurt. And then you give them a vaccine. And they gave them a vaccine and 20% of them went down. 
Oh, and yet they're going into production with this vaccine. I think they're going to try to do 30 million doses um, immediately and by January to do a billion, manufacture a billion in this country and a billion in Switzerland with a vaccine that took 20% of the high dose group out. And one of the people in the low dose group went down too. This seems like a very, very dangerous vaccine. And it, and and by the way, they haven't even tested it. They haven't even done a challenge, which is a big hurdle for coronavirus vaccines. Because in the past, what's happened is they give these vaccines to humans or animals. Coronavirus vaccine it uniquely, it operates uniquely because it creates a kind of antibody, the neutralizing antibody. But in addition to that, it creates an antibody called a binding antibody that actually facilitates the virus binding to human receptors. So it makes you much, much sicker and kills you. In the trials that had the vaccinated people and the vaccinated animals sicken and die much more quickly and the unvaccinated vaccine actually makes you sicker. And so it's critical in these trials that they give them the vaccine because they, they all demonstrate, yeah, we got good antibodies. But are those the good antibodies or the bad antibodies? We won't know until we actually challenge them and let them catch the wild disease and see what happens to them. And, and that hasn't been done yet. And God forbid that they don't have immune enhancement and fall sicker than they ever would have been, uh, as, uh, as happened with the dengue virus vaccine. It happened with the dengue virus, it happened with the MERS virus, and it happened when they tested coronavirus on ferrets. And it's called, as you say, it's called an enhanced immune, or immune enhanced, paradoxical immune enhancement, and the other, there's other names for it, but one of them, you know, that I use most often is pathogenic priming. It actually primes your system to make you sicker. It's an extraordinary situation we live in. I saw, Bobby, today that... Um... The ex-head of MI5 had confirmed, having read a secret report, that the virus had come from the Chinese laboratory, the Wuhan. It was not known whether it was a mistake or otherwise. But what is surprising to me and and potentially, I would think, treasonous is that when these experiments were stopped under the Obama administration in the US due to scientists protesting the dangers of modifying these viruses, coronaviruses, to make them easier to infect human cells in this case, that it was then moved by uh, Tony Fauci offshore to China to continue the work. Now, if that was the case, I, I would consider that treasonous to defy your president to continue what were considered to be extremely dangerous experiments, which has now been borne out. What we have now, I believe, and have always believed, is a consequence of a, a laboratory modified virus that is doing something that hitherto it was not able to do. And a lot of people have suffered as a consequence. To continue our conversation, head over to patreon.com Andy Wakefield podcast. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a seventh Chakra Films production. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Andy Wakefield podcast. And now on Sphere, S-P-H-I-R dot I-O at Andy Wakefield. <laughs>